The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Like Jim said earlier this morning here on Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus inaugurated Holy Week. And as my grandma used to say to me when I was little, an event a week that changed the world, a week that changed the world, and indeed it did. It is Palm Sunday, and it's the day that, as we know in the gospel account, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and began everything that changed our viewpoint of salvation and how we came to saving faith. You know, when you read the gospel account, you, you can read back, and starting in Luke chapter 19, where we are, you can see that the first half of the week started off in celebration, but within just a a few days, everything began to turn. And just like a news cycle that's out there, within 48 to 72 hours, it turned to a grim reality to which the right in the middle of the Holy Week, towards the tail end of it as it moved and progressed, really became to a truth that we have to come and reckon with. Because what happened as, as we know in the gospel account, Jesus was tried, he was mocked, and he was crucified. He was tried, and he was mocked, and he was crucified. And this morning, what we are going to look at is probably one of the most challenging sections of Scripture, the crucifixion. And the reason why it's challenging is because, quite honestly, it's just not easy to read. Because we are seeing an innocent man, and not only just an innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself being, being brought before a throng of people and to be crucified on our behalf because of our sin. And the reality is when we come to the crucifixion, the reason why it's hard is because, number one, it's true. It's true. It's a historical event that took place. There is so much historical evidence out there to point to the cross. And then, number two, because it's true, then that forces every man and woman to reckon with what the cross means. Since it's true, that means there has to be a reason and a meaning behind it. And the reason why it's, it's hard for us to come to the grips is because it forces us to reckon with our sin, our penalty with sin. That's what it forces you what it forces me to do. Because trust me, no one in Jesus' time, or even when crucifixion was invented by the Persians, no one got up one sunny day and said, hey, who wants to get crucified? You didn't see this in the local schoolyard and people coming together and wanting to do this as an act. No, this was a criminal's death. And as we will see in just a few moments, it was a death that is dehumanizing and painful beyond we can even think and imagine. But what we see in this account is what we also realize is that there's a response given. 
And as we are going to walk through the, the story of the crucifixion, what you have to come to grip with is what is your response when you hear the story of the cross. We're going to walk through this account together. And as we will see this morning and to celebrate here on Palm Sunday is that you too have to give a response to the truth of what the cross forces you to reckon with. Because as we will see at the tail end of this account in the Gospel of Luke, there are two people who have a response, two criminals. And each of these individuals, both of these criminals, have two totally different responses that have eternal consequences. This morning, as hopefully you got an outline, we are going to walk through four points in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. And what we are going to see this morning is, through this account, we are going to see, number one, how even through being crucified, Jesus calls on people to repent now. Believe in the Lord Jesus now. The second thing we are going to see is that how the mockery of our sin the mockery that Jesus endured is the same mockery that put him on the cross. Our mockery put him on the cross. Our sin put him there. Number three, we are going to see through amidst excruciating pain, we're going to see how Jesus interceded for the people. And then number four, and here's where we're getting to, there's a response. And it's, we are going to see those two criminals come back into the storyline and we are going to see how Jesus, even in the midst of this crucifixion, does not stop to save sinners. He doesn't stop. So, like I said, I hope you have your Bible open with you. And with you, and if not, there's one out in the lobby, and I'm going to invite you to go grab one here in just a moment. But what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read as we walk through this story. So I'm going to read the verses as we walk through these points together so that you can follow along very intently throughout this part of the crucifixion. So let's pick up Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26, and we will look at our first point this morning, Jesus' warning, repent and believe now. Pick up with me in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one of Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Our first point this morning is Jesus' warning to repent and believe now. So here we are in verse 26, and up to this point, Jesus has been found guilty of being the Messiah, for being found the leader of the king of the Jews. All these accusations that the rulers of the Roman rulers and as well as the uh, Jewish authority there, this is the charges they have put against him and they have found him guilty and his punishment is to be crucified. It's an extreme penalty that we find here. And in verse 26 where we see is Jesus has now been on his way to Golgotha called the hill, also known as the skull. When someone was crucified, they were there tried there in the Roman province of Jerusalem. And what we find is that once they were tried, we realize then that they were charged to carry the cross 
up to the place or the location to which they were going to be crucified. They don't, we don't, from history of what we have found, it don't, we don't know if it's the whole cross or the partial cross. But regardless, what we know from history is that this cross weighed over 300 pounds. And remember, they were carrying it uphill. So this is not an easy task that Jesus was doing. And this is a heavy cross. And remember, as he is journeying up the Via Della Rosa, we have to remember back, look with me in Luke chapter 23 and verse 16. Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. When you see that in verse 16, what it means is that Pilate ordered him to be flogged, which means he was beaten with whips, brutal hits all over the body from head to toe. A lot of times, as history would account, it would actually bring men to the point of death even before they got to the cross. It was excruciating. Who knows the amount of blood was pouring out of Jesus' body as he walked up the hill? And who knows the immense pain that the Lord Jesus endured on our behalf as he was being punished and flogged? I have in your outline an article by a doctor named Colleen Schreier, and I'm going to encourage you to highlight it there, and you can look at this article um, when you get home or Google it. But she writes about the science and the medical science behind Jesus' crucifixion, and I'm only going to read a section of this so that you can get an idea of what was taking place. Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged as required by the Roman law before crucifixion. And traditionally, the accused stood naked and flogging, covered an area of his shoulders down to the upper legs. The whip consisted of several strips of leather, and the middle of the strips were metal balls that hit the skin, causing deep bruising. In addition, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. And when the bone makes contacts with Jesus' skin, it digs into his muscles, tearing out chunks of flesh exposing bone beneath. You can read the rest there, but it is not easy to read through. But this is what he endured when you look at that verse there in verse 16. Immense pain. Immense agony there on the cross. And here in verse 26, through blood being spilled, through pain throughout his body, there we are introduced to a man of Simon of Cyrene. What we know is that he is a Jew from Libya. That's where the Simons were located. And he was commanded by the Roman authorities to pick up the cross and carry it to its destination. But what this is what we need to understand, and this will give us a greater context of understanding why Jesus says, repent and believe now. Because there's a lot of people out there that say, because um, Simon was carrying this cross, because of this act of mercy, that's what saved him. That's what brought him to saving faith. But we don't see him believe in Jesus at this moment. And the reason why I wanted to specify this is because even though he did a mighty work, apart from faith, nothing saves. And we have to understand this. I couldn't imagine given that task to carry that cross. And I'm not even going to even try to go and put myself in his shoes. But what we have to see in verse 26 is apart from faith, nothing saves. And I have to say that twice. Because there's a lot of liberals out there that want to say, oh, give him credit. Look what he did. In fact, we could all say that. Look at my own good deeds. Look what I've done on this earth that I could even try to save myself. But here we need to specify this because this helps us understand this proverbial riddle that Jesus then looks to the daughters and the women and the mourners there starting in verse 27. 
And it's an interesting proverb that he says, but what Jesus is getting to is that a judgment and destruction is coming. And it's coming within their lifetime, within 40 to 50 years, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And this is going to come by the Roman army under Emperor Titus. And what we see as we break down this proverb is that, look what he says first, daughters of Jerusalem, in verse 28, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And in verse 29, he talks about, it's better that you didn't even have children for this day of judgment and destruction that is coming. How opposite can you get? The Old Testament, as we know, says that when you have children, it is a blessing from God. When you don't have children, there's a curse. There's something going on in your life. And here the Lord Jesus, God incarnate, says it's better for you not to have children on that day. Now, a lot of you know in this room that I have three girls, and I couldn't imagine someone telling me it's better for your kids not to be here. Which as a parent, and even if you're not a parent, a grandparent, aunt and uncle, for you to hear those words means it's going to get pretty bad. This is not just a mere covering your child's eyes if you see something pop up on the news or, or a sporting event, something that's maybe crazy to even look at. No, this is not. It's the absence of the children. That's what Jesus is saying is better than their actual, than actually being there. It's crazy to even think about that. Destruction is going to come onto Jerusalem that day, and it's going to be so great that children shouldn't even be alive or even there. And then he goes on a little bit further into this illustration of wood, green wood, excuse me, versus dry wood. Now, a lot of you have a fireplace at your house like I do, and every fall when you call to have firewood delivered, what do you ask for? Dry wood, because it's quick, burns quick, and it burns hot. But what Jesus is saying with this green and dry wood is what, he, is what he's getting to in this intriguing proverbial riddle here is that saying that God, he did not even spare his own son, which means he's not going to even spare Jerusalem because of their disobedience and sin. And he's going to unleash his righteous wrath upon them, which means they are the dry wood. But Jesus is the green wood. And if you know anything about green wood, it doesn't burn. It just smolders there in your fireplace. But he's mourning, as, as, he, as he sees these mourners there, and they're lamenting for him. What Jesus, you can feel in verses 27 through 30, there's this sense of urgency in his message. And he, in fact, has said this from all along in his earthly ministry, warning them of their sin and disobedience of not having faith that he is the true Messiah. Turn over in your Bible just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 19, just for a moment. Luke chapter 19. And look with me in verse 41. This is right as he enters into Jerusalem there in the triumphal entry. And look at this, this weeping that Jesus has for Jerusalem. And again, remember the context of this destruction that's coming there in A.D. 70 that we just read. He says he drew near and he saw the city, verse 41, Luke chapter 19 saying, what the have you? Even you knowing on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will surround up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You can turn back over to Luke 23. 
So he even talks about this in his weeping. And in fact, even the Old Testament prophesies are foretold about this and gave people a warning even in the Old Testament. There in your outline you see Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. The people shall enter caves and the rocks have holes before the terror of the Lord from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. We see even in Ezekiel chapter 20, again, the, the illustration there of fire and wood being burned. Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. A blazing flame shall not be quenched, and pale faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And Jesus is urging here, even in the midst pain, excruciating pain, to take heed to my word and repent now and come to faith. There's no U-turn. You can't say, well, listen, I'm going I'm to head out of town for a little while. I'm going to try to divert this destruction. No, it's coming. Even when this ultimate day of atonement that is here with the crucifixion, when God's wrath is satisfied on the cross, Jesus is saying, watch out, take heed to my words and as well as to my actions, which naturally leads us here to our second point, to see why Jesus has this urgent message to repent and believe now. It's because of sin. Our second point in your outline, the mockery of our sin put Jesus on the cross. The mockery of our sin put Jesus on the cross. As you continue to read here in Luke chapter 23, I'm going to pick up in verse 32. Listen to what it is described. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots with his garments. And the people stood by watching but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, over the top of his head on the cross, that said, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The mockery continues. The humiliation continues. And we can see there in verse 34 that there was a dividing of his garments. If you will, turn over in your Bible to Luke, excuse me, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And this is prophesied even in the Old Testament of the suffering that Jesus is going to endure on our behalf. Look in Psalm 22, starting in verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. You can even see, take your eyes just a few verses above that, in verse 7 in Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me, and they wag their heads. The reason why, you can turn back to Luke 23, the reason why I give you that is because even the Old Testament foretold of the coming Messiah, and you need to understand that. Yes, this is a historical event, but we need to see that even the Old Testament knew there is going to be one final sacrifice that is coming, and it's coming through the death of God's son, Jesus. I want you to know that and note that as well. 
but the mockery continues. And it's interesting, as we just read, that the words that these Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders use are the exact same things that Jesus came and did. You notice that? He did bring salvation. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. In fact, he even says over four times, they, they say, save yourself. Save four times. But they're crossing over themselves, aren't they? They're not like two ships passing in the night. Their words have two different opposite meanings. They don't understand the significance of what is taking place by Jesus there being hanging on the cross and the mocking that is taking place. But what they are doing through their mocking is they are affirming Luke's Christological focus that he has been repeating throughout the gospel account. Luke is confirming over and over again that the idea that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and through these words of mockery, they are confirming that. It's interesting also to see in another Old Testament text that Isaiah foretold of the suffering servant there in Isaiah 53. I believe I have it in your outline, but it says in Isaiah 53:3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Because of our sin, we too are guilty like the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. We are guilty of sinning against the holy God. It's easy for us to stand back and not want to associate with these mockers, isn't it? To take a little bit of a viewpoint of judgment and say, man, why, why would you do that? How could you do such a thing? It's easy for us to go there. In fact, actually earlier, uh, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with my oldest daughter, Eleanor, and we were talking about Jesus being mocked and, and, and tried and crucified. And she's seven years old, and we were talking about uh, this, what mocking means, and even we were going back to Mark chapter 15 when soldiers were spitting on him. And for a seven-year-old little girl, she got it. She couldn't believe that Jesus was being spit on and mocked like this. She even said to me, well, Dad, I don't like how they're calling him names. She understood it. And I could tell even on the countenance of that little face of hers that she was sad and troubled. And then as we were continuing to talk about it, she even said, and I agreed with her, how could you do this to Jesus? He's so good and loving. She is exactly right. But you know what the hard part of that conversation was? Is when I had to turn it as her father and helped her realize, darling, he's there because of us. The mocking that you see and you, that, we're, that we're reading about is our mockery. And that's hard. And it always is hard. Because what it does, like I said in my introduction, it forces you to reckon with your sin. You know, I, I love to share the gospel with others when the Lord gives me the chance. And lately it seems to me that I've had a zero-zero effect. And no one wants to even get close with me when I'm sharing the gospel for some reason. I know it's not because of my good looks because look at this. But, but it's funny, when you get to the sin part, people don't want to hear it. In fact, I was sharing the gospel the other day with a man at a restaurant, and as soon as I got to the part where Jesus died on the cross for a sin, he literally took a stage left, walked right away from me. Why? Because of sin. People don't want to hear this message. People don't want to hear this and especially when we see this mocking going on, it's hard to even hear these words that were, saying, that were being said to Jesus 
Because ladies and gentlemen, the fact is we too were casting those same words. We too were mocking. We can't sit there in a position of judgment because we too were right there along. Which then leads us to our third point. So we see now Jesus is calling for this sense of urgency to repent now. Why? Because of sin. And then we get to the part of what the cross is doing for us. We see the intercession of the good shepherd. He intercedes for us on our behalf. Look with me in verse 33 and verse 34. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That means he's there, he's on top of the hill. And then in verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. Notice a few things that are taking place here. And this is the part you have to understand. Even during this agonizing time, he's interceding on the behalf of the people there that are crucifying and as well as on your behalf and on my behalf. Isaiah 53 tells of this. The prophet tells of what the Messiah is going to do through his great intercession. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and making intercession for the transgressors. He interceded. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Apart from him, we are nothing. We too are poor in spirit. And here we see Jesus on the cross, dying for our, on our behalf. The final sacrifice. No more shedding of blood from an animal. It's the shedding of the blood of the good shepherd, interceding for us. And this is what we have to understand. This is what you have to understand. Again, this is not a fun act. This is not a playground ritual. This is what Jesus came to do. And there he is doing it perfectly. Just like the Old Testament foretold. And just as when Jesus inaugurated his ministry back in Luke chapter 4, when the Father spoke, this is my beloved son to whom I am well pleased, and he kick-started his earthly ministry, this was the end goal to die on the cross for our sin. Notice the other thing he does. He perfectly obeys and fulfills the passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, by loving his enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Read along with me in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to be transparent with you. When I was studying for this text, I had to start and stop because this isn't easy to read. I really did. I had to start and stop. And when I came to verses 33 and 34, you had to think about it. Even on the cross with his hands nailed to his side and in his feet and with head to toe as we read in that scientific account, there with probably you could see his insides, yet he prays. He prays. Let that sink in for a moment. The Lord Jesus prays. And it's not a flippant prayer. He's asking for forgiveness. 
He's asking for forgiveness. And look what he says in that idea of they. Who is the they? What is he praying for? He's asking the Father to forgive them. The Greek word there is aphame, which means to send forth away, to pardon, to forgive a debt. And the they there are, I believe, the Romans and the Jews to be forgiven because they genuinely didn't understand the acts, that they were crucifying the Messiah. Today, someone can be charged in the court of law with negligence or gross negligence. And I'm not an attorney, but the term there means a fair to behave with a level of care that someone of ordinary prudence would have exercised under the same circumstances. Let me put it in a redneck version for you, like for myself. It means you should have done what you're supposed to do. That's what it means. You knew what you were supposed to do, yet you failed to do it. That's what it means. And even in the Old Testament, there were degrees of punishment when a sin was committed, even when there was ignorance on, that, on the behalf of somebody. It's like very similar like you, Senior Allen, the sin of omission and commission. Commission, you know what you're doing. Omission, you should know what you're doing, according to the Word of God. Even Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to flip there, but I'll turn there. In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What I'm getting to, ladies and gentlemen, is that even though they didn't know what they were doing, they are still guilty of sin. And guess what? Whether you realize it or not, you too are guilty of your sin. Can't escape it. It's in their detour. And I know I've said that numerous times now, but you need to understand that. Because we live in a world today that can try to massage and change words around that makes sin okay and comfortable. In fact, I was even listening to a pastor down in Atlanta say that Jesus was good for his life. What a sham. No, he came to die on the cross for your sins. And you need to understand that today. And that's what we see here when, there when he says, Father, forgive them. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God and all, have trans, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. And here's the other thing we need to see, the third thing that we need to see. Yet through the mocking and people saying, save yourself, we must understand, this is your outline, that Jesus willfully restrains his power to accomplish his mission to save sinners. Let me repeat that. Jesus willfully restrains his power to accomplish his mission to save sinners. Let me help you understand it in another way, by two words, could and would. Jesus could have gotten down on the cross. He could have caught on every angelic power and being to come and help him, but he what? Would not. He would not. Paul, in Philippians chapter two, I have it in your outline, talks about this in verses four through 11 having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But listen, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He could have, but he would not. And that's what makes the cross even more serious. Yes, events like World War I and World War II happened. Pompeii happened. Great wars and famines have taken place all across the history of this globe. 
And those are important events, don't get me wrong. But this one affects your soul. And this one you have to come to grip with, with between you and the eternal Lord. That's what the writer in Ecclesiastes talks about, that all of us have eternity searching within our hearts. We all have that feeling within us that know that there's something out there. What's this world all about? Even David writes about it in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. He's pointing to the, God the maker. But here, now, we can see God the maker, that he sent forth his son to be our advocate, to intercede for us. And by the way, the good news is he's still interceding for us now. Don't forget that. Romans 8.34, he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. 1 John 2.1, he's an advocate with our Father. And Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. That's a great hope to have, a great hope to have. And now this leads us to our third and final point. Even though he's been mocked, he's under immense pain, we now see that he came to do exactly what he said to Come to seek and to save the lost, as we can read back in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Our fourth point, that Jesus never stops working to save sinners. Which cul- And all these three points now lead us to this point. He warns them, the mockery of our sin, put them on the cross. He's interceding for us. But even through it all, through it all, he never stops working to save sinners. Listen along with me in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse, we're starting in 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we come to verses 39 through 43, we are seeing two men be crucified with the Lord Jesus. We don't know what they did, but we do know that they are guilty. And they have been found to be, um, and they are, their punishment as to be crucified. Some texts call them robbers, some call them revolutionaries, but regardless, they are criminals here in the Gospel of Luke, and they are mentioned in all four. And notice, both of them have two totally different responses. One mocks, as we read in verse 39, and the other one understands his sinful plight. He gets it. And I want us to concentrate in verses 40 through 43 on the one who understands his plight, the repentant criminal. Look with me in verse 40 of what this repentant criminal does. Notice the first thing he does. He confesses his sin. He says in verse 40, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He acknowledges the sin. He acknowledges his wrongdoing right there before Christ and before others. The second thing he does, instead of insulting the Messiah, since he knows he's there with him, what does he tell the other criminal to do? To fear God. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? To fear God there on the cross. 
If you know anything about the Gospel of Luke and as well as Luke's other letter, the book of Acts, this is a repeating theme in Luke's letters, to fear God. And to fear God means to give honor and reverence to the Lord. So how does one do that even there on the cross? A.W. Pink, and you can see it in your outline, writes about six ways that we can honor the Lord in one of his writings. And this is, I believe, how this criminal, this repentant criminal, was able to honor the Lord on the cross. Number one, he had a right view of who God is. A right view of who God is. He knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. He knew that he was the Messiah. The word around us still claims that God is very similar to what they say in Acts chapter 17, that he's the unknown God. But we can know him, can't we? By faith. But what we find here is this criminal had a right view. He knew that he had sinned against a holy God, and he knew that this was God incarnate. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And the criminal saw this. The second thing, how we honor God, is, is by how we honor Jesus. And how do we honor Jesus? We honor Christ, as Pink says, by resting on his finished work. By resting on his finished work. The criminal did this. And we knew that Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was the anointed one, and we can see that he did. Number three, his word. Honor him by his word. The criminal had heard now, and had seen it with his own eyes, that Jesus is the Savior. And remember, up to this point, he had been with Christ for over six hours. So I think they had a good working relationship, so to speak. And so what we find here is that he obeyed by faith the words that he heard about Christ. Remember what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Number four, his gospel. We honor God by honoring his gospel. And there is no doubt this man knew the work of Christ. Salvation is here. And that's why he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus' name even means, the one who saves. He knew who he was talking to. Number five, his spirit. The man heeded the call to confess his sin and believe in Jesus. How? Through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerated this man's heart and gave him the ability to believe. Regeneration always precedes faith. And this man could not resist the irresistible call to believe in Jesus. And then number six, his cause. Pink says, whatever means God has given you, use for his glory. At this point, all the criminal had was his life. And what a thing to give, isn't it? What a thing to give. And then this criminal, this repentant criminal, hears the words of salvation. Verse 43, listen along. And he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a word of assurance. What a message of hope. There on the cross, excruciating pain, Jesus utters these words, and this man hears him. What a message of hope. One commentator, Robert Stein, said the criminal was able to be saved be precisely because Jesus did not save himself. Let me read that again. The criminal was able to be saved precisely because Jesus did not save himself. There's never a spare moment 
in Jesus' ministry, is there? Even on the cross, he is still working to save sinners. And here he is, doing exactly what he came to do. Though this criminal may be a dreg of society, God saves him. And ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a tax collector, a parent, grandparent, neighbor, whoever you are, Jesus came down the cross for your sin, for my sin. Because at the end of the day, we are all helpless. We are all poor in spirit. And we all, just like this criminal, all have to call out to Christ for salvation. So what do we do from here? What's the big picture? You can see it in your outline. Number one, if you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, and this is a big if, let the crucifixion set in as a daily reminder. Let it set in as a daily reminder. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Never forget that. Live your light in light of the gospel. Honor the Lord with everything that you have because you only have one life. You only have one shot. So live with the, with the reminder of the crucifixion and let it set in daily. Number two, repent of your sin. If you are not a believer, if you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about and you want to know, come to Christ today. I beg you. Don't wait another minute. Don't pass it off. This is not something that you ever want to put on the back burner. Come to Christ today. If you have that feeling within your heart right now and you want to know, know more about the Savior, call on Christ. Do not harden your heart. I beg you with everything that you, in, my, in my being. Come to Christ today. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin before the Lord and receive him as Lord and Savior today. You have questions about what this Jesus means, of what Jesus means and what this crucifixion means even more? I'll be down front at the end of the service. Come see me. Talk to somebody here at Capitol who's a member maybe and, and just ask him about, what's this gospel mean? What's, give me more details about what Kenny's talking about. The second thing we need to understand is this, with repenting of your sin. You never stop repenting. This is not a one and done. In the Christian life you're going to be repenting for the rest of your life, by the way. At least I am, and I know you are too. Never stop repenting. Never think that it's something I just did once. Because when you come to the grips of the crucifixion, if you're like me, and I don't say this in a pious way or boast myself, there were times when I was going through this text and all I could do was get on my knees and confess. The third thing is this. If you are a Christian, and if you're struggling with something in your life, a, a sin that you can't unshake, and you feel your conscience wearing on you, maybe it's pride, maybe it's ang anger, anxiety, jealousy, lust of the flesh, coveting, whatever it has been, confess it now. Don't wait. Don't live your life with this sin hanging a chain, like a chain around your neck. Confess your sin now and live in light of the gospel. I grew up with an older man that whenever you would ask him to share his gospel, uh, excuse me, his testimony, when he would talk about Christ, he would immediately start crying. And he always would say these words, I have been forgiven for so much. 
That's all he could say before he would gain his composure back. And if you're a believer, I pray that's the same heartfelt response that you have. And then number three, tell others about Christ. Tell others about Christ. It's a command. And tell others about this good news. May we be like the woman of the well in John 4, 29. Come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So in closing, we have to come to grips with what happens in verse 46. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died. He died. There are seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and all four Gospels spread them out. But this indeed was his last. And it's amazing. Even through immense pain, he still is able to breathe this one last time and say these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's done. It's all done. Jesus was in complete control the entire time. And in verse 48, the people had the right response. They went away beating their breasts. R.C. Sproul says they went away trembling. I think they did. But ladies and gentlemen, I can't not beg to repeat this message. When you come to the cross, you have to have a response. And that's what it forces you to reckon with. Your sin and the eternal consequences that are behind it. And listen, if you don't know Christ, come to him today. But if you do know Christ, my prayer is that you're going to live in light of the gospel every single day. And you're going to make your life count. But listen, don't wait. Don't wait to get right. Don't wait to come to faith later. Well, so listen, I'll come back next week. It's Easter Sunday. It'd be more special. No. Come to faith today. But also, remember this. The great hope behind verse 46 is chapter 24. He's alive. He's alive. And my prayer for you is that you too will sing like the great hymn reminds us that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's my prayer for you. And that you will live in light of this eternal truth. Let's pray. Father, the cross forces us to reckon with our sin. And Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, as Lord and Savior. Lord, help them come. I pray that you work in their heart for them to come to faith in you today. Come to Christ today. But Lord, as Christians, this truth is a daily reminder. As Paul even says that he die, that I die daily. And Lord, I, I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room. So Lord, let the crucifixion be our fight song. Let it be, Lord, our daily reminder 
of the work that you did on our behalf and to know that you interceded for us and that we no longer stand condemned, but we are justified all because of Christ. So Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.